And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. If you get your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8, just a couple more verses here uh, that we're going to look at. We're, we're taking our time through Romans 8. Um, I think that very first week, uh, probably five or six weeks ago when we started, I, I, you know, many people uh, consider Romans chapter 8 the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, it begins with no condemnation, it ends with no separation, and in between is no defeat. And so we've been looking at that kind of verse by verse. And so we're at verse 12. We're just going to look at two verses this morning, 12 and 13. So if you would, just stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. And here's what Paul writes. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray. Father, uh, these are uh, tough words this morning. Uh, talking about living and dying and what does that all mean and living according to the flesh and living according to the Spirit. So even now we ask for the presence of Your Holy Spirit to be here with us, to lead us, to guide us into this truth that we can understand what it means to do away with the deeds of the body that we might live. So speak that truth into our hearts and we'll give You praise and glory for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Set that right here for right now. Paul gives us some really wise counsel here in our text. It's very simple. Kill your sin. Kill your sin. It's a concept that we don't hear much about anymore. Uh, It used to be a widely understood approach to the process of sanctification. An integral part of that was, hey, you kill your sin. The Puritans called it the mortification of sin. Now, in our times, to be mortified typically means to be embarrassed. Oh, I was just mortified. I was so embarrassed. The word really means to be killed. The Puritans knew all too well that we are engaged in mortal combat with an enemy that lurks within. You can call it the flesh, call it the old man, call it indwelling sin. It doesn't matter. Either you kill it every day or eventually it will kill you. Now, about a month ago, I spent nearly four hours listening to John Owens' book called The Mortification of Sin. It was on an audio book. Now, John Owen was a mid-17th century professor and scholar at Oxford in England, and Owen wrote in what James Packer calls lumbering Latinized idiom. In other words, he's not easy to follow, but it's worth it in the end. I'm man, I'm cutting out left and right. Uh, I'm currently reading this book called Overcoming Sin and Temptation. I'm about 60 pages into it. I just got it on Thursday. And it, it, it is very good. It's three of John Owen's work works on sin that have been re-edited slightly and uh, with a little more uh, updated language. The Latin, the Greek, and the Hebrew are all uh, translated there. And the obscure phrases, they're footnoted so we can know what he meant 350, 400 years ago. 
Well, Philip Ryken, he's the president of Wheaton College, he endorses it by saying that John Owen is a spiritual surgeon with the rare skill to cut away the cancer of sin and bring gospel healing to the sinner's soul. Apart from the Bible, I have found his writings to be the best books ever, ever written to help me stop sinning the same old sins, end quote. Now, I can only scratch the surface of this topic today. Uh, if you want to go deeper, I encourage you to get Owen because it doesn't get any better than that. And it'll be worth your trouble reading it, I promise. Now, Paul here explains further and applies what he wrote in 8.6. There he said, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Now, the death in 8.13 just like that of 8.6, is not physical death. That's something that we all are going to have to come to grips with and we'll all pass through one day. But he's talking about spiritual death, eternal separation from God. In other words, Paul is saying, kill your sin or it will kill you. Now he's saying here what he says in Galatians 8.6. There he says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There are only two ways to live and only two outcomes. To live according to the flesh ends in eternal death. To live according to the Spirit ends with eternal life. Now Charles Simeon put it this way, Either sin must be our enemy or God will. This, this, is, this is serious business. To understand and apply these verses, uh, I want you to consider just three points this morning. Number one, to kill your sin, remember your obligation, not to the flesh, but to the Lord. Now this is verse 12. Paul says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Paul breaks off there in mid-sentence, leaving us to supply the, the second half of the verse that we're actually under obligation to the Lord. He has bought us with His blood so that we now belong to Him. His Spirit now dwells in us. It follows. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. Now, Paul expresses the negative, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. The flesh, that's our old nature, that's our old man that we are born with by virtue of being born in Adam. Now, to live according to the flesh, that simply means to live under the domination of the flesh according to its desires. And those desires, they're self-centered, they're opposed to God, and they're not subject to His Word. Those who live habitually according to the flesh or in the flesh are not truly born again. But the fact that Paul addresses this obligation to believers or brothers that means that we still have the flesh dwelling in us, trying to gain dominance over us. Everett Harrison says it's tremendously important to grasp the import of verse 12 because it teaches beyond all question that the believer still has the sinful nature within himself despite having been crucified with Christ. The flesh has not been eradicated." End quote. Bishop Moule put it, Say what some men will, we are never for an hour here below exempt from elements and conditions of evil residing not merely around us, but within us. 
Now some teach, based on Romans 6.6, 6, that the old nature or the flesh was eradicated because it was crucified with Christ. In my estimation, they are greatly uh, minimizing the danger of the monster that dwells within the hearts of even the godliest of saints. It's never beneficial to minimize a great danger. If an enemy is threatening to kill you and you ignore it, guess what? He's going to succeed. If you live under the dominance of this enemy, this sin, you will die. Now Paul says we have no obligation or debt to the flesh. What good has it ever done us? What favors has it done? None. We owe it nothing. But by implication, we owe God everything. He loved us while we were yet sinners. That's Romans 5.8. He sent His own Son to bear the terrible, the awful penalty of our sin so that we need no longer fear condemnation. That's Romans 8.1. We now belong to Him and we owe it all to His grace, not to anything that we have done. So to kill your, to kill your sin, remember your obligation, not to the flesh, but to the Lord. Well, number two, to kill your sin, understand the horrific consequence if you do not kill it. And that is, it will kill you. Now, verse 13, the first half says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, the literal Greek is, you are about to die. And, and that expression is equivalent to a future tense. But it implies that there is still time to repent and avert these horrific consequences. Now, Paul is saying two things here. A, a life of unchecked sin leads to eternal death. Death is a strong word, especially uh, in contrast to the life that is promised to those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit and who by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. Now, note that Paul did not say, if you don't kill your sins, you're going to lose some reward in heaven. He wants us to view this as a mortal combat. Either you kill your sin or your sin will kill you. Not just with an earthly death, but with an eternal death. Paul says something very similar over there in Colossians chapter 3. After stating that we have died with Christ and been raised up in Him, he draws a conclusion in Colossians 3 verses 5 through 8. He says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And he's got this list. It's not a pretty list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now, in these warnings, Paul is simply following Jesus, who in the context of warning about mental lust, back in Matthew chapter 5, here's what Jesus says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown in hell. Those are some tough words, aren't they? Now, Jesus does not mean to literally tear out your eye or cut off your hand. That's not going to solve the root problem, is it? 
But he is warning that if we do not get radical in killing our sin, we will spend eternity in hell. Now, you're probably thinking, uh, if Christians are saved by grace and not by works and are eternally secure, how can Jesus and Paul both say that if we don't kill our sin, we'll end up in hell? Well, the New Testament has frequent warnings to those who profess to know Jesus Christ but do not know Him. Perhaps the most frightening is Jesus' warning in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those who truly know Christ live in obedience to Him, which means they kill or are killing their sin. False believers may even serve in ministry, but they do not kill their sin. John Piper explains, he says, putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, the daily practice of killing sin in your life, is the result of being justified and the evidence that you are justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. Now listen to what he says next. If you are not at odds with sin, you are not, home, you are not at home with Jesus. Not because being at odds with sin makes you at home with Jesus. No, you got it backwards. Being at home with Jesus makes you at odds to sin. James Boyce puts it rather bluntly. He says, Paul is saying that if you live like a non-Christian, dominated by your sinful nature rather than living according to the Holy Spirit, you will perish like a non-Christian because you are a non-Christian. A life of unchecked sin leads to eternal death. Well, B, sin is not neutral. And it's definitely not nice. Sin always destroys lives, both for time and for eternity. It, it always dangles the promise of happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction uh, right before your eyes. But it's only bait to lure you into a trap which leads to eternal death. You need to burn Paul's words into your brain. If you are living according to the flesh, you will die. Satan tries to get us to minimize the serious nature of our sin so that we excuse it as no big deal. We tolerate it as normal and even sometimes repackage it as a good thing. I've heard Christians say things like, I've lived with this angry, uh, bitter, nagging wife for years. It's simply impossible to please her. But now I've met a, a wonderful woman at work and she treats me right. Don't I deserve a little happiness after what I've had to endure? And so he justifies his adultery and his divorce. Or as I said, some Christians argue that as believers, we're never to view ourselves as sinners but only as saints who occasionally sin. 
They camp on verses like Romans 6.6, which says that our old man was crucified with Christ so that our body of sin might be done away with. They insist that they are dead to sin so they don't even fight against it. But that is to minimize the deadly enemy. Some years ago, the French aristocrat, Baron Richard Darcy, he kept a two-year-old lion in his home as a pet. One night in June of 1977, the Baron tried to make this pet go into the bathroom where it usually spent the night. But the lion refused to go. Instead, he leaped on his master and in minutes had clawed him to death. You need to understand that sin is like that lion. It may be nice at first. It always seems that way. But at some point, it turns on you and the result is never pretty. Kill your sin or it will kill you. But that raises the question, how do we do that? Well, that's point number three. To kill your sin, put it to death by the Spirit and you will live. That's verse 13b. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, this is a daily process that will not end until we are with Jesus. As Christ's words about plucking out your eye or cutting off your arm or your hand imply, it's not painless. But we've got to keep at it as long as we live in this body of sin. John Owen John put it this way, When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But what does Paul mean when he says, But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body? Let's look at it one phrase at a time. First, by the Spirit. That means to rely on the Holy Spirit or to trust in His power. The Holy Spirit is not a tool that you use, but a person whom you trust. Now there's a mystery in that we are responsible to trust and obey, and yet it is the Spirit who gives us the power to trust and obey. Paul puts it together in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Listen to what he says. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like something we do. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do you get it? God is working in us what is for His His will and good pleasure. We work it out. We, (laughs) uh, We work out our salvation. We're not passive. But neither do we obey by sheer willpower or determination. Matthew Henry says, We cannot do it without the Spirit working in us, and the Spirit will not do it without our doing our endeavor. Doing our part, you may have heard this. If you're if you're you know you're out out on out five miles outshore and you, and you can't get any cell service, your motor dies. What are you going to do? Well, you do a couple things. First of all, you pray to God like it all depends on Him. Then you paddle to shore as hard as you can like it all depends on you. And between the two of you, God can make it happen. Now, ironically, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. When we rely on the Spirit, He gives us the power to control ourselves, which includes killing our sin. Now, by putting to death, Paul means cutting off sin before it goes anywhere. 
We must take whatever radical action is necessary to separate ourselves from sin. Now, he he explained how this works in chapter 6, where he said that when we believed in Christ, we were baptized into His death. We died with Him when He died to sin. That's our new position. But we have to act on it. So Paul exhorts, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, be what you really are. Now, why does Paul say deeds of the body rather than deeds of the flesh? Some commentators insist that the difference really is significant, while others say that it is merely a variation of style. Paul has already used body in chapter 6 to refer to the body of sin. That's verse 6. The mortal body where sin should not reign. That's verse 12. And the body of this death. Verse 24. He also refers to the members of your body, which we are not to present to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but we are to present them to God as instruments of righteousness. Now that's 6.13. So if there is a difference here, he's focusing on the body as the instrument through which the sinful deeds of the flesh are expressed. Until Jesus returns... We live in a body that is still prone towards sin. And sin is sin even on the thought level before it ever displays itself through the body. But if we kill it on the thought level, it will not become a deed of the body. Now, sins that are expressed through the body, they're always worse than sins of the mind because they damage others and they bring dishonor to God. So we must put to death the deeds of the body by cutting them off in the mind before they are expressed openly. Now, to make this as practical as I can, I want to give seven steps to kill your sin. could probably come up with more, but I, but I hope these help. Now, I'm kind of assuming here that you have experienced the new birth so that the Spirit of God now dwells in you. So number one, purpose to be godly and discipline yourself for that purpose. This is coming right out of Scripture. In 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You must decide. My aim is to become a man or a woman of God so that my life glorifies the God who saved me. In light of that purpose, make plans not to sin. Usually, we fall into patterns of living that kind of set us up for sinning. Study yourself. Work out a plan to cut off any opportunity for sin. If you're easily tempted to pornography, set up safeguards and accountability to keep you away from that temptation. If you're tempted to uh, drunkenness or drugs, stay away from the people in the places where you could fall. Discipline implies going against your immediate feelings and impulses for a higher goal. Think about an athlete. Uh, If they want to win, they're going to avoid certain foods, even those, those foods taste really good. They're going to work out even when they don't feel like it. Likewise, a Christian who purposes to be godly disciplines himself for that goal. Well, number two, kill your sin at its root, and it will not bear its deadly fruit. 
Now think about it. You can knock the fruit off the tree, but if you don't want it to grow at all, you've got to cut the tree down at the roots. Sin begins on the heart or the, the thought level. If you cut it off there, it will go no farther. No one commits adultery without first thinking about it. So when lust, greed, selfishness, or pride, or anger, or whatever pops up into your mind, cut the thought off right there. Don't entertain it. Number three, cry out to God for deliverance. This is kind of what I was talking about a minute ago. Cry out to God for deliverance and take whatever action you must to flee the temptation. So again, this is the mysterious balance that I mentioned. You trust God, but you also take action. God says in Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will honor me. But the Spirit also inspired Paul to write in 1 Corinthians six eighteen, Flee immorality. In 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul says, Flee youthful lusts. So two things here, pray and flee. Number four, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. We've gone over this before. The things of the Spirit, that refers to the many, many, many wonderful truths and promises of God that is revealed to us in His Word. Think on those things. Number five, spend time daily in the Word of God. It's often been said, either sin will keep you from the Word, or the Word will keep you from sin. What method did Jesus use when He was tempted in the wilderness by Satan? What did He use to defeat Satan? Scripture. He quoted Scripture. Meditate on and memorize the Word. You're not always going to have a Bible in a concordance handy. And for those who were here, I think it was Sunday night, I I said, I found that verse I was looking for the week before. And then went to look, if you remember, went to look for it and I couldn't find it. I thought it was Acts 21.20. It was Acts 20.21. So I was kind of dyslexic there, but, but the Lord finally showed it to me. Number six, keep the cross in view at all times to deepen your love for Christ, to deepen your hatred of sin, and to deepen your desire to glorify God. The motive for killing sin is that the Son of God loved me, gave Himself up for me, so I want to honor, I want to glorify Him. The motive for killing sin should not primarily be to rid yourself of a frustrating problem that's maybe disrupting your life, like, ooh, my anger or my drinking or my gambling is causing problems in my marriage, so so I want to kill these sins. Rather, it should be my anger, my drinking, my gambling is dishonoring to God who gave His Son for me. And that's why I want to kill these sins. Lastly, number seven, walk each day in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. A walk, that's a step-by-step process that is taking you towards a goal. Now, if you fall, you just don't sit down and cross your arms and start pouting and say, well, I guess I'll just quit. No, you get up and you continue walking. You've probably heard about or seen the movie about Aaron Ralston. 
He was an avid climber, an adventurer, who was hiking in Utah's Blue John Canyon in 2003. When all of a sudden, a boulder fell and pinned his arm between the boulder and the canyon wall. He was trapped like that for an agonizing 127 hours. If you want to watch the movie, guess what it's called? 127 hours. He finally realized that he must cut off his arm or he would die there. Guess what? He did the gruesome deed, and he is alive today. His attitude is incredible. I watched a, watched a video of him. It was relatively short. Uh, today, he's got a, and he has, he has helped create new prosthetics for athletes and what have you. Anyway, he says, I don't look as that as a loss. He said, so much has been added to my life since that time. The guy's attitude is incredible, but the movie is 127 hours if you want to check it out. Guess what? Just like he cut off his arm to survive, you've got to do that with your sin. As Paul says, if you don't kill it, it will kill you. Now here's the good part. The indwelling Holy Spirit will give you the power to kill your sin as you walk in obedience to Him. Let's pray. Father, that's a high call. Uh, Killing sin is a lifelong calling. As long as we're in this body, there is going to be a struggle. But Father, you've told us clearly what we must do. Kill our sin or it will kill, kill us. So God, I pray that you would just bring this truth home to our hearts to understand the devastating nature of sin. We may think, oh, this isn't so bad. But it is. God, reveal Yourself to us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe you're sitting out there today and you have never come to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, You know, you have this unsurety in your soul. You've got questions. You've tried life in this direction, life in that direction, and nothing ever fulfills you. Uh, Solomon, when he wrote Ecclesiastes, was very clear. God has put eternity in the heart of man. Only the eternal will fulfill it. Remember the old song, looking for love in all the wrong places? That's what life is about. Figuring out the right place to find love. It's in God. And there's only one way to come to God. That's through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So let me ask you, that's the question first. Have you given your life to Christ? Have you asked God to forgive your sins? He's the one that you have offended. And have you trusted in what Christ did on the cross? God sent Him to this earth to die a death and to pay for things that we could not do ourselves. And it's in His death on the cross that we are bought, we are purchased, if we simply, by faith, trust in what Christ did on the cross. Have you done that? We've been using language here over the last eight weeks or so, in Christ, more like two or three months. In Christ or in Adam? You're you're one or the other. If you've trusted Christ with your eternity, (laughs) you're in Christ. If you have not, today's the day you need to do it. Turn your heart over to God. If you're a believer, I hope that you've just been encouraged a little bit to understand that, yes, this is a lifelong process of us struggling against sin. Um, 
I'm amazed at how many times uh, Mr. Owen here goes back. He also goes, he's, he's using the verses. Matter of fact, the very first that he meant, very first verse that he mentions in his fight against sin is Romans 8.13. If you don't kill your sin, it's going to kill you. But if you buy the flesh, if you kill, if by the Spirit you kill the flesh or the deeds of the body, you will live. That, that's, that's the opening verse that he goes with. But he also goes to Galatians 5.16 and 17. Uh, quite a bit that the, the spirit and, and the flesh are in this ongoing battle so that you cannot do the things that you would do. Dealing with that, that's, that's what we're talking about. That's, kill, that's taking care of your sin, dealing with your sin, killing your sin. And it is day by day by day. It never goes away. Don't ever think that evil isn't lurking. <laughs> it's there. It's ready for you, and I promise you, you're, you may not be ready for it. Kill your sin daily. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.